Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc. to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I am your host, Melba Toast. May this episode bless you and bring glory to God. Hello, ladies, and welcome back to another episode of Thoroughly Equipped. So glad you have chosen to listen to this podcast. TE is part of the Christian Podcast Community, which I highly encourage you to check out at podcast.strivingforeternity.org. The community has reached 100,000 downloads in the month of April, and it's still growing. The content and teaching that comes out of this community is just great. I can't recommend it enough. But today, we are continuing to look at the If Gatherings 2020 conference. If you're just tuning in, I suggest you go back to the beginning of the series, which is episode three of this season. Now, That's because I go into why I'm addressing this in such detail. In the earlier episodes, I presented to you the purpose of the conference along with the popular speakers. And in this portion of the series, we're looking at the way these teachers handle scripture. And the 2020 conference is laid out perfectly for us to do just that, as Jenny Allen set up the conference to be centered on Romans chapter 8, dividing the chapters into sections to which the speakers were to quote-unquote focus completely and entirely on the person of Jesus. Even though chapter 8 of Romans is about the role and work of the Holy Spirit in the life of those who are the children of God, in all truthfulness, drawing out the person and work of Jesus Christ and even proclaiming the good news is very easy to do. Christ and his work is proclaimed clearly in the first couple of verses of Romans chapter 8. So this is what we want to determine. Did these speakers handle the text rightly and actually give us and teach us about Jesus? Or did they just give lip service to Jesus and instead chose to teach us what they want, their expressions, their experiences, their life lessons, their opinions on the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, etc.? Well, last episode, we examined two messages given on Romans 8, verses 1 to 8. One of the reasons I love doing this podcast is the opportunity to look at scripture and really shine a light on how wonderful it really is. And even in critiquing books or messages, it is an opportunity to proclaim the beautiful good news of Christ and his work. And last week's episode, looking at Romans 8, 1 to 8, was a perfect opportunity to do just that. Jenny Allen was right in this regard, that Romans 8 is just so theologically rich. Really, all of Romans is incredibly filling. In fact, Luther stated in his preface to his commentary on the epistle, quote, this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament, end quote. That's from Luther's preface to Romans. Unfortunately, what was given in these messages, because they did not draw out from the text its rich theology, ended up being jello instead of meat. 
And meat is so satiating and filling. Believe me, I did the carnivore diet for over a month. Never has any diet kept me so full for so long that I was eating only two meals a day and 12 hours apart at that. Real good, deep theology keeps you full through life, through trials and tribulations. As man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's Deuteronomy 8.3 and Matthew 4.4. 4. Now the message we will look at today was given by Beth Moore, who was to teach about Romans 8, 9-11. So let's dive in, shall we? Before we get into Miss Moore, uh, Moore's message, let's dive into the text that she's supposed to teach about. Moore's text is Romans 8, 9-11, but like always, let's look at it in context. Paul, throughout the first seven chapters, basically presented the truth that all men are under condemnation and are born children of wrath due to their sinful nature, that men are born slaves to sin. Yet those who have been united with Christ are no longer slaves to sin, but to righteousness. And because we have been buried with Christ and raised with him to newness of life, we are not under law, but grace. Because we are under grace, we present our bodies in obedience to God, slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. In chapter 7, Paul describes the battle between the flesh and the spirit within the man who wishes to obey the law of God, which is spiritual and good, yet is living in a body of flesh. It is here then that Paul proclaims the good news to those who wrestle with this inner battle that there is no condemnation for those in Christ because Christ did what we could not do, taking on human flesh, condemning sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And this is where we'll get into the text. So we will be reading Romans 8, 5-13. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now here's Miss Moore's passage. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I'm going to go to 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So this text is all about the work of the spirit of Christ in the life of a believer. Paul has been constantly contrasting the flesh with the spirit. And he makes it very clear in verse 8 that the flesh cannot please God. Why? Well, one, 
Those who are in the flesh do not have faith, as Paul describes how people suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1, 18-25. They don't hold to the truth and live in it, but in rebellion actually suppress it. And without faith it is impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six. 2. Those who do not have faith in Christ and his work do not have the Spirit of Christ, and therefore do not belong to Christ. But those who have faith in Christ were buried and raised with Christ and are indwelt with the Spirit, who now are empowered to put to death the deeds of the flesh and live. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is given to us to raise us to walk in righteousness, to desire to obey the law, and in that desire, obey the best we can. That is what this text is saying, that it is the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But is this what Beth Moore will talk about? Now let's get into our message. Beth Moore starts out praising the if gathering as a work of God because of Jenny's lack of knowledge in what she was getting into and its radical explosion over the years. But can we know that something is a work of God because of the weakness of someone's ability or the growth in attendance and involvement? Now, I hope to address this type of thinking as it's often pointed out in the if gathering throughout the years. Christine Kane even describes it as a revival in the 2021 conference. So, Lord willing, I want to think about what are the evidences of a work of the Spirit of God? What fruit should we be looking at to test the spirits? First John 4, 1. But that will be, Lord willing, tackled in another episode. She then begins to talk about her love for the Word of God how it saved her soul and mind. She gives a testimony of a Bible teacher of hers who preached the word of God with such passion that she decided she wanted that same passion to love the word of God more than she loved her next meal. And like her, she relays that there may be ladies listening that may see that passion and hunger in someone and cry out for that type of passion as well. Now let's listen in because this is her setup for talking about the work of the Spirit. And I'm telling you, I got in my car, I shut that car door after that class that night, totally riveted, I, I was speechless, I couldn't even take a note down. And I said, Lord, I don't know what that was, but I want it. And I've said so many times, the Lord took that, it was like he took a, a, a match to a stone and struck it and set a torch in my heart. And I tell you this because this weekend, I don't know who it will be, it will be different people for different ones because you have different learning styles. But you're going to see somebody, you're going to know that the Spirit of God is on them, and I don't even know how to define it, but Lord, I want that. I want to hunger and thirst after you like that. I want, I want to love your word like that. I want to have a fire in my bones that I would go anywhere in the world you sent me. I want it like that. One of the things that he's taught me over and over again is, what do you lack in the Spirit that I would give to anyone? What is it I've prioritized you? Then pray for it. And I constantly ask him, give me a love for your word. Give me a love for your son. Give me a love for people. Because when we pray in the will of God, we will have what we ask. You ask him to delight you in his word, and he will. He will answer that request. There are several things here that I could definitely agree with. Yes, let us have that passion to love God's word his son, and our neighbor. And yes, when we have that desire, 
God will answer our prayers because in loving God, we will ask in agreement to his will. In fact, Romans 8, in a way, touches on this. Paul indirectly talks about this, that the Spirit not only gives us the desire to see God's will accomplished, but the power to accomplish it. In this portion of scripture, the will of God is obedience to the law, and more specifically, his will for us is to believe in Jesus Christ who fulfilled that law. But is this where Beth Moore will go? She then lays out the format of the conference, noting how Jenny planned it that each speaker should address a portion of Romans 8 to be expounded upon and cohesively come together in the end. For her, she was portioned out Romans 8, 9 to 11. But there are two verses that she says she's going to focus on. Now I want to stop here for a bit and just make a note. We have already read the text in context. And if you listened to the last episode, I want to remind you of a couple of things at this point. One, that it was acknowledged in the introduction that there are likely unbelievers listening to these sessions. Two, that Jada had opportunity to present the gospel, the life and death of Jesus Christ, presented to us as a gift to be received by faith for the forgiveness of our sins and salvation from the wrath to come. Romans 8 clearly laid this out for us in the opening passages, and yet it was not given. The gospel was watered down to God pursuing us. So at this point, the unbeliever has been told that God took care of their greatest need, not really expounding on that, by God pursuing them. And now they are told to dive into this portion of Romans without anyone drawing out what it means to walk in the flesh. We've got Jenny's take on setting the mind on the flesh versus setting the mind on the spirit, by which she interprets setting the mind on the flesh as focusing on worldly pursuits such as success, money, material, items, etc. While to her, to set the mind on the spirit is interpreted as thinking positively and pursuing peace, kindness, joy, love, confidence, etc. No talk of how one who walks in the flesh is a slave to sin, while the one setting their mind on the spirit is to set the mind on Christ and in love for him obey the law, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. It is this dichotomy that Paul presents to the reader so that they may ascertain whether they truly have the Spirit of Christ. And that is where these verses are going to go. But for one who hasn't been presented with this dichotomy, nor the gospel, they may come to the text thinking they have been given the Spirit merely because they do not pursue success or material things and work their best at defeating negative thoughts. So now Beth goes to the passage, and she's going to present to us her goal for the message she's about to give. Romans chapter 8. My verses are 9 and 10, and they say this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. I want to read that again. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. I'll go back to that one point again. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. I want you to know my one goal for this message, just one. 
just one. And that is that it would be used of God, overtaken by God in such a way that every single one of us would far more greatly value that which is in us. My whole aim is that somehow our appreciation of this treasure that he has put within us would so skyrocket that we would respond in such a way to yield to what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Okay, so she reads the text, repeats a couple of times, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him, and proceeds to give her goal for the message, saying that she wishes for God to use the message to cause every single one of us to greatly value that which is in us, so that this treasure that was put within us would so skyrocket that we would respond in such a way to yield to what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Okay, let's look at these two verses again. Verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Verse 10, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life, because of righteousness. This is the text she has been given to teach on, and her goal is to encourage us to value the spirit that lives within us in such a way that we yield to what he wants us to do. Okay, my question is, does the Holy Spirit through Paul, in writing this passage, have the same goal? Is that what he intended in writing these verses? Paul definitely wants to encourage believers. He wants to encourage them by directing them to observe their walk and assure them that if they are in Christ, they have his spirit, which empowers them to walk like Christ. So when Beth Moore says that she wants us to treasure the Holy Spirit so much that we yield to what he wants of us, does she mean to live by faith in Christ Jesus and submit to his law? What is it that the Spirit wants us to do? Does she believe it is arrived at subjectively? Let's find out. She uses how women value the life of an unborn child in the womb as an example of valuing the Spirit within us, and makes the claim that if this passage was an Instagram story, it would be at this point that all sorts of emojis would be placed. For it is this passage that reveals whose Spirit has been at work all along. There would be all manner of thing going on in that story when we got to this point in the scriptures because something huge takes place here doctrinally. Something you need to know, something I need to know and be aware of every single day of our lives because the entire premise of this part of Romans chapter 8 is this, a very, very simple kind of equation. The Spirit of God equals the Spirit of Christ. I want to say that again. That may sound like, you know what, that's not very exciting. Oh, no, this is so exciting. The Spirit of God that had been taught all the way through the Old Testament, seen the activity of the Spirit from the very beginning of Genesis, that we find out through the inspiration of God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, that that Spirit of God all along has been the Spirit of Christ. Yes, this is a wondrous and glorious thing. 
Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit is God's Spirit and Christ's Spirit. That same Spirit that worked with God in creation, worked in Christ, perfect righteousness, and raised him from the dead. And Paul is reminding us that that same Spirit worked in us to raise us to life, to be led by him, verse 14, to walk in him and give life to our mortal bodies. At this time, she leaves the text and gives the listeners a bunch of verses that talk about God's Spirit being Christ's Spirit. Now, what she's doing here is called proof texting. That's where one takes a bunch of verses out of context to build a theology. Proof texting done correctly is good. But if the verses are taken out of context to be given a different meaning than what they actually mean in context, then that is a no-no. Beth Moore, at this point, isn't quite mishandling the verses given. She is using them to explain how God's Spirit was Christ's Spirit from the beginning, that He resides in us, giving us supernatural power. I want to say something to you. This is supernatural power. The Word of God tells us in a number of different places that we have a power that is beyond us, that is dwelling in us. But so often, we're just like reliant on our own natural strength. I've lived so much of my life, and I just want, oh, I want somebody to get this because I could save you so much time. Because I spent so much of my life trying to live for God. I had a heart for God, but I was the biggest mess. I would just like cycle in and out of the ditch over and over again. Because I, I, I had such a desire to know him and to please him, but I never, ever really let him get to my heart and bring healing to my heart and really tend to the things that were so broken in me and so messed up with me and so depraved in me. But when I began to understand the role of the Holy Spirit, I thought, all this time I've been trying to live for God when he's been going, you know what, let my son live through you. What you surrender to me and let me live it through you. Yes, I agree. We have been given supernatural power. And yes, we should be desiring to please God and be an example of Christ to others. But what does that look like? How does one mirror Christ? Is that subjectively determined? Do I go by inner impressions just like Beth Moore does? Am I like Christ because I feel nudged to show kindness to some man by brushing his hair? Do I live like Christ by responding to inner impressions that convict me to do this or that? Or does scripture lay out for us what righteousness looks like? What actually pleases God? Will she clarify what it means to be an example of Jesus Christ? The perfect man who fulfilled the whole law constantly doing the will of the Father? She clarifies why we are given this supernatural power. That without the Spirit, we do not have the capacity to fulfill our callings. This is your reality. Are you in Christ? Then the very Spirit of Christ is in you with a capability. You're not even capable, nor am I, of fulfilling our own callings because they must be done in the Spirit. What you've been called to do, you do not have the capacity to do. So we'll just live all of our lives. If, if we don't get this, we're just like struggle through. And I mean, we'll get to our deathbed and go, you know, he said he, he had a calling for me and he just never kept his word. He's going like, you know what? You tried to do it by yourself. 
I was trying to do it through you, and you just kept trying to do it yourself. All that good effort. All right, now that's a problem. If one has the Spirit of God, he will cause one to fulfill their purpose. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This word handiwork comes from the Greek poema and means something crafted with skill and for a purpose by God. God accomplishes his purpose through us. Now, Beth Moore wants to make this purpose some grand thing, such as becoming a speaker, a leader, etc., some type of career or ministry position. But God's will is broader than that. He desires that people love him and love neighbor, and how we do that is revealed to us by his law. This is our purpose. These are our good works. They can be performed in our careers and ministries. They can be performed in service to our children and husband, to a stranger or a friend, and be done through trial and tribulation. She continues on to present passages talking about the Spirit's work and sidetracks a bit, asking us to imagine what type of reception Christ may have received upon his ascension to heaven, turning and talking about the eternal plan of God to send his Son, and then she says this. And he came and he said to him over and over again, I came to do the will of my father. I came to do, the, I, my food is to do the will of my father. And you know, when you're filled with his spirit, when his spirit is empowering you, you will know that satisfaction. Because there are things that will happen when you'll realize you've been used of God and you'll know that no meal could have done that for you. That's something about it. You say, I, I, can't, I can't believe that just happened. I mean, God caused that encounter, and, and something just happened there that I know could not have been of me, and it's just a work of the Spirit, and, and you'll know that kind of like, man, that's, that's food to me. So having certain type of encounters should be our food. I mean, Christ said that his food was to do God's will, but again, what is God's will? Jesus elaborates on this when he repeats Deuteronomy 8.3 while under the temptation of the devil. He was hungry, physically hungry, and in his great hunger he said to Satan, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4.4 4. And Christ was sent to do God's will, that will being exactly what we see in Romans 8. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So when Christ says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work in John four thirty four, he's talking about. God's word. To fulfill God's word is to do God's work. While we can experience instances in life that give praise and honor to God's providential work in our lives, what Jesus is referring to here is the accomplishment of God's word. We too are well fed when we trust in that word, which is Christ and the scriptures, and walk in him, being led by the Spirit, to obey his word. Again, Christ and the scriptures. 
She goes back to imagining how those in eternity observed Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and then instructs us to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, reading from verse 15 to 23, and goes into some context of this passage, referring to Ephesians chapter 3, to talk about how we may get a sense that Paul is trying to convey some type of boundless space, and Christ is filling all of it. Then talks about the apostles watching Christ ascend, And we read it as it's something that was normal, yet the apostles were probably astounded. He blesses them, and then he just, like, lifts off the mountain. We just act like that's normal. We just read about the ascension and go, and, you know, Christ was ascended. No, like, they were like, I mean, there's his feet just, like, dangling in the sky. I mean, up up he goes. They're just, like, standing straight up. We know that because the angel says in in Acts chapter 1, why do you men stand there and stare into the sky? The one who is gone, just as you've seen him go, you will see him come again. And it even tells us, Zechariah 14 even says, he will come to the very Mount of Olives where he left. That's how specific it is. And just watch him, and a cloud enfolds him. It just takes him up. So we've got this whole idea. I mean, just not, didn't all of a sudden just like appear in heaven. He is ascending because he, as he is ascending, I mean, is just all filled up with his glory because he has finished what he came to do. And I mean, he's also like, he's going far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we're meant to be awed. We're meant to be awed. Yeah, we are meant to be awed. And I appreciate the exaltation of Christ here. At this point, we're 40 minutes into her message that's almost an hour long, and really, she's been all over the place, pulling out scripture here and pulling out scripture there, scripture that references spirit of Christ, and even talks about Christ's authority and references verses to that. But here's the thing. Do you feel you understand Romans 8 verses 9 to 11 now? Has Miss Moore helped us understand what the author's intent was in writing it? She goes back into Acts as it describes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the adding of God's people to the church, recites lyrics to a song sung in their worship time. Now, if you were watching this all throughout her message, she would stop and put candles on a cake. It's at this point that she lights them as she's reciting the lyrics to the song, which describes how the Spirit, quote-unquote, lit the flame in the birth of the church. Now, it's after describing the work of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost that she begins to talk about the work and purpose of the Holy Spirit, to testify of Jesus Christ. We are to speak with tongues of fire by our lives, our love, and our testimony by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I still believe in tongues of fire. Oh, I still believe in tongues of fire. I still believe in the power of spoken words. Does anybody believe in the power of spoken words? not the kind of fire that burns and scorches, but the kind of fire that lights up a place. In Ephesians 3.20, oh my goodness, we have all, or many of us quoted this verse so many times, and we should, it's so beautiful. But I want you to listen carefully to what it's saying. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according, listen carefully, according to the power at work within us, within us, 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Listen, listen carefully to me. Listen carefully. You and I want miracle signs and wonders so badly. I do too. I do too. That's not to put any condemnation on anybody. That doesn't make you uh, a weak, immature, uh, superficial. Oh, I, I ask him constantly, renew your wonders in our day. But when he is talking about a power that is more, far more abundantly than all you could even think to ask. It is in the context of a power that is within people. I want you to understand because it would be a game changer for us if we understood that the biggest wonder that God wants to perform in this New Testament age, in the age of the church, is us. Us. It is the transformation of people. Yes, he could do all the healing. Yes, he could do all the circumstantial changes. He could do every single bit of that. And we might be changed for 10 minutes or maybe 10 years. But what he wants to testify through is the power of a transformed life that you just flat don't make any sense to people. God wants to change us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he most certainly does. He does a greater work than any physical earthly miracle we could see. He raises the dead to life, people dead in their trespasses and sins, and raises them to newness of life. People who used to suppress God's word, suppress the truth, now love God's word, and are empowered by the Holy Spirit to keep it, not perfectly, and with much struggle against our flesh, but the desire and motivation to love God by keeping his word is there, John fourteen fifteen, And that is exactly what Romans 8 is all about. And Ephesians 3 dives into this as well. That through the power of the gospel proclaimed by Paul to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ might be made known. Because of this gospel, Paul prays that the church be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, that they, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, Ephesians three sixteen to 20 This is the transformation work that the Holy Spirit does. He brings us faith to trust in Christ, know and comprehend the love of our Lord, and empowers us to walk in his statutes. But listen to what she means by transformation. Is it the transformation as Romans describes or something else? My, my pastor asked a question about six years ago that I've never been able to get over. He said, when your life is over, when it's all said and done, when, when you're gone from this place, do you want there to be a natural explanation for your life? No. No. I want it only to be nat supernaturally explainable. that it could only have been God. Whatever it is he's called you to, it's like out in the God zone. The work of the Holy Spirit is to empower you for your calling so that your life looks supernatural. Ladies, when we hear something like that, we most likely go, yeah, that's what I want. 
Most of us imagined that that kind of life would be full of adventures, risks, and successes. But I tell you that this one reviles the real work of the Holy Spirit, who, like I mentioned earlier, does a miraculous work in the salvation of an individual, bringing one out of darkness and into light, 1 Peter 2.9. This work is not visible. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, John 3.8. It is weak, imperceptible, and not spectacular in our eyes, yet it is so very powerful. Two, this is so very burdensome on women. It makes one look at their life now and doubt if they even have the spirit. A typical woman working to support and love her family, serving in nursery at her local church, doing her best to submit to her husband, is left to doubt the work of the spirit in her life. Too many women have fallen for this, thinking they were not serving God rightly in these things, dropping them to pursue a higher calling, one subjectively received. Instead of merely being grounded in God's word, obeying his commands, being faithful to him in service to those closest to us, family, friends, church home, etc. For my sanity, at this point, I'm going to stop. <laughs> there is still 15 minutes left in the message, but most of it is her telling the listeners about a ministry she is head of and a story of one day dancing for Jesus with a member of the ministry. So I'm going to conclude her message with this. She pulls out a bunch of scripture that talks about receiving the Holy Spirit and basically claims that the Holy Spirit will empower us to accomplish our calling testifying of Christ's work in our lives and makes our lives supernatural. But Romans 8, 9-11 is explaining that those who are in Christ have the Spirit, which is in stark contrast to those who are in the flesh. Those in Christ do not have their minds set on the flesh, but on the things of the Spirit, verse 13, putting to death the deeds of the body and submitting to God's law, verse 7. She spent most of the 50 minutes pulling out other verses in the Bible to talk about the Spirit of God as being the Spirit of Christ in hopes of encouraging the listeners to value what is inside them, claiming that that Spirit empowers them to live supernatural lives. Did we, at all, get that from Romans 8, 9-11 when we read it? Beth Moore is a favorite within evangelical circles. She was heralded in her introduction at the If Gathering as a great Bible teacher and spiritual mother to the speakers there. She is a great orator. She can tell a story and can quote scripture like nobody else I've seen. But she's all over the place. And for those of us who want to know what scripture actually says, to study it and get in depth, the way she handles it, causes distractions. You certainly get a lot of information, but are you actually getting fed? What did you think? Do you think she addressed the text correctly? Let me know. Feel free to email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. So ladies, until next time, I pray that as you read Romans 8, you are valuing the work that God has done in you. That you praise him for taking out your heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh, Ezekiel thirty six twenty six, 
granting you the faith to believe in the Son of God, that you praise him for granting you the Holy Spirit to empower you to walk in his statutes, to love his law, and obey his commands. If you are convicted, knowing that you have not kept God's law and are not walking in his ways, I pray that you read all of Romans, and as you do, you are brought to love God for sending his Son to fulfill the law for you and bear the cross for your sins, so that you might be reconciled to God, and that you are, by grace, given faith to trust in the work of Christ. When you do, you are given the Helper, the Spirit of Christ, to walk in faith and to accomplish the good works of the law for your neighbor that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in. Whether those be accomplished in service to our employers, our teachers, our parents, our husbands, our children, our friends, or a stranger. In all this, I pray, ladies, you are in His Word. Ladies, if you are interested in the transcript for this episode, you can go to ttew.org. You can find other great resources, articles, blogs, and videos that may bless you in your Christian walk as well as links to follow me on social media. If you wish to contact me, you can email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. Again, the website address is ttew.org. Thoroughly Equipped is part of Striving for Eternity's Christian podcast community. Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity by assisting Christians to have an eternal perspective on life. They strive to bring evangelism, discipleship, apologetics, and Christian living together for the purpose of eternal preparation by exalting God, edifying and equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. They provide speakers, online articles, online courses, books, podcasts, and other theological resources, all centered on God's Word. To find out more, go to strivingforeternity.org. And to listen to other podcasts, go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org. I pray that their resources bless you as they have blessed me as we live our lives day by day, praising and glorifying God.